Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. The Writings of the Early Church My priest often says classification is the beginning of understanding. One of the things that intimidates people about approaching the writings of the early church fathers is not even knowing how to classify them. Are these spiritual writings or are they academic writings? Are these comprehensible writings or are they incomprehensible? Are these writings applicable or are they not? Further, other questions arise, such as, don't we have to be seminarians or theologians or academics to be able to understand the fathers? To make clear up front, the answer is no to this question. These writings were not written to seminarians, nor were they written to academics, but for the most part were delivered to congregations serving their spiritual needs. Also, The sheer number and variety of writings is intimidating. So that raises the question, how can we even begin to have an inkling of where to go and what to do when trying to become acquainted with the church fathers? I will begin by saying right now that if you don't have an acquaintance with the Bible, then don't even bother trying to read the church fathers. Their minds and words are so shaped by the scriptures that without background knowledge of the Bible, you will not understand them. It will be like beginning to watch Star Wars by beginning at Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, which is the final installment of nine films, all of which are one story. Or like beginning to watch the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Avengers Endgame, which is the end of its story that spans 22 movies. You will not appreciate what you are experiencing. If you are not well-read in the Bible, then I recommend you listen to the previous episode of my podcast titled, What Does It Mean to Read? It both introduces you on how to read the Bible and how the fathers instruct us to begin on that journey of reading the Bible. Once you have built that acquaintance with the Bible that is described in that episode, then you can begin reading the church fathers. If you do have that acquaintance, then with some work you will be ready to enter into the world of the writings of the early church. Just as my priest said that classification is the beginning of understanding, so to begin to approach the fathers of the church, we must classify them. This is done in a few ways. First, it is common to group them by language. There are Greek, Latin, and Syriac fathers. The Greek fathers were found in Egypt, Asia Minor, Rome in the beginning, the West, and in Palestine. The Latin fathers wrote in North Africa and Rome occasionally until the late 4th century, when Latin became the most expressed language in Rome and the West altogether. Then Syriac, which was used in Syria and Mesopotamia. When you begin to enter into the world of the fathers, it will be important to note these linguistic divisions, because there are also characteristics that are more common among certain groups. For example, 
The Syrians have a very close background to the writings of the Jews, who wrote in Aramaic, which is actually a dialect of Syriac. They also tend to be mystical in the sense that they show the connections between so many things and elevate the imagination and heart. They are also very poetic. The Greek fathers' writings touch on so many different areas of life and integrate them to an understanding of God, our Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and humanity in all its aspects in order to integrate both the mind and the heart. In a way, their insights and their expositions are foreshadowings of the modern social sciences, but it is an integrated approach among the church fathers, with the goal of developing the Christian to become an image and likeness of Christ. The Latin fathers are highly structured and practical, which reflects the way of life of the Romans, but this is a tendency. You will also find similarities with the Greek fathers. Now notice, these are all emphases. It is not doctrine, but what specifically the church fathers, according to their language groups, emphasize. Another common way to group the church fathers is by time period. This is usually done by centering on the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325. This is because the writings of the fathers can clearly be seen to have different emphases before, during, and after this event. So those who came before Nicaea are called Antonicene, meaning before Nicaea. Then these can be further subdivided into other groups. So among the earliest church fathers are the apostolic fathers, who were the disciples of the apostles, or in the generation immediately following the apostles. These texts tend to be more pastoral, and most of them are letters. But then you also find apologetics shortly thereafter, and these apologetics respond to pagan challenges to Christianity. You also find catechetical writings in this time period. That is, writings that train people who are drawing near to Christ in the faith right before they receive baptism and enter the church. The emphasis on this time period is an understanding of Christianity by Christians for Christians. So you also find sermons and early commentaries and the development of Christian philosophy. Then when we move to the Nicene period, which is shortly before the Council of Nicaea and going up to about... 40, 50 years afterward, you find a focus on the Trinity, and the writings are now dogmatic, and you find inter-Christian conflict, different groups of Christians arguing about different meanings of the Bible and doctrines, and you also find an emphasis on the structure of the church in the midst of all this. You also find a tendency to engage in a minute examination of the scriptures. You have letters, but you also start seeing the lives of martyrs and saints, and books on many different spiritual topics, and apologetics of all sorts, and the continuing development of Christian philosophy. Then moving on afterwards, so about 380 onward, we enter the period called the post-Nicene period, meaning after Nicaea. And this period continues until about the 5th century for Oriental Orthodox Christians, and until the 7th century for Eastern Orthodox Christians and Catholics. The focus here is on the nature of Christ, and it also focuses on Christian living. Sermons and commentaries become the main type of Christian writing. You also have letters, but they're a lot more common now, and many volumes worth of letters. We also find increasing writings that recount the lives of the saints, 
We have books on many different spiritual topics, some apologetic works, but also systemic works, so how everything connects together and coheres. Some of these writings include St. Augustine's The City of God and Maximus the Confessor's writings, and also St. John of Damascus's writings on the faith. Now, with all this said, the issue arises that we don't simply go back to any writing from this time period, but only to the authentic Christian writings which are those that were written by the fathers who were universally recognized and accepted. For example, if you want to read something from the mid-2nd century, you'll find the writings of St. Justin Martyr and the Gnostic Valentinus, who both wrote in the same time period and who were both living in Rome. St. Justin Martyr was universally recognized and accepted by the early church. Valentinus was also recognized but as a teacher of error, or in the ancient Greek, heresy. One should note at this point that recognition and acceptance were not popularity contests. A church father might have had personal disputes with another church father, but they could not claim the other as a heretic if their teachings were sound and recognized as orthodox. So we find occasionally fathers who had disputes, but never challenged the orthodoxy of the other. If you belong to an apostolic church, such as an orthodox or catholic church, it is very easy to determine the church fathers from those who are not, because the church fathers are saints. It should also be pointed out that after we have classified the church fathers, then there is a right way of approaching the fathers, and a wrong way of approaching them. Many in the West are used to depending on one or two authors for spirituality, but this is not how we do things with the writings of the fathers. We read the fathers according to their agreement. The term is called the consensus patrum, or the agreements of the fathers. This is the agreement of the fathers of all times and languages on dogma and doctrine. This must be the lens through which we read the fathers. Otherwise, we can fall into errors that certain fathers made. For example, origin on the pre-existence of souls or St. Augustine's formulation of original sin when it is read outside of the context of all the other fathers. These errors can be dismissed as not having been characteristic of Christianity when these authors are read in light of the other fathers and what they had to say on the matters. Everyone makes mistakes, but reading the fathers in the context of all the fathers in their agreement, we can discern the right teaching of the Christian faith. Unfortunately, some people do what I call sola patristica, or the fathers alone, by quote-mining the fathers in the same way that some people quote-mine the Bible. But quote-mining does not arrive at an understanding of the central ideas of texts or their purposes. Quote-mining only serves confirmation bias which is to claim evidence that our already existing view is right, even when that evidence read in its own context does not support our view. Rather, to arrive at an understanding of the central ideas of the text and their purposes requires reading things in context. And when we read them in context, we can understand how to compare the contexts of the fathers to our own contexts, and then how to apply their insights into our own spiritual lives. My favorite example of quote-mining to support a view is when people try to justify socialism or communism 
from the book of Acts, where it portrays the earliest communities of the church as having, quote, had all things in common, end quote. This is in Acts chapter 2, verses 44, and Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And they forget that those economic systems, such as socialism, did not exist back then. They also forget that capitalism did not exist back then, and that socialism and communism are both reactions against capitalism. So how could it be that what we see portrayed in the life of the early church was even similar to socialism or communism? They also forget that this is the church community portrayed here, not a secular government. So with that context in mind, we can understand how to compare what is portrayed in the book of Acts to our own situation. We see that giving was done freely in the early church, not by taxation. And it was done out of conviction, not compulsion. And it was a spiritual practice, and not just a way to manage society. So we find that we can apply that way of life to our own modern context when we give freely and joyfully from our faith. We now move on to actually reading the writings of the early church, which in our case will always be in translation, because these fathers wrote in languages other than our own, specifically Greek, Latin, and Syriac. Part of the issue of reading the church fathers has been the translations of the fathers that were done in the past, especially those done in the 19th century, which are the most widely available translations, due to the fact that they are out of copyright and as such, can be distributed freely online and reprinted without seeking permissions. For example, when I first started reading St. John Chrysostom, I found it very difficult to understand his sermons in those translations. For example, the translations use words like genuflect and vouchsafe, when they could have easily used words like kneel and grant. Then when I came to read his On the Priesthood from the St. Vladimir Seminary Popular Patristic series, I truly heard the golden mouth speaking. I also read some of his sermons on repentance and almsgiving, published by Catholic University of America's Fathers of the Church series. And in that translation, the beauty and power of his words was also clearly felt. If you want good and readable translations, the two best publishers for the Church Fathers are St. Vladimir Seminary Press Popular Patristic Series. Further, they are affordable, ranging from about $12 to $20-something for most of the volumes in that series. Their introductions are also highly edifying. Many often worry about other publishers' introductions being too complicated and not helpful for building spiritually. But this publisher's introductions are quite helpful for reading and for spiritual growth. They have more than 60 volumes and counting. Also, Catholic University of America's Fathers of the Church series is very good and probably the highest quality of translations of the writings of the Church Fathers. Their introductions serve as books themselves to the Fathers they introduce. Yet the volumes are somewhat expensive, usually averaging about $40 to $45 per volume, no matter the length. But they are worth the money. They have more than 133 volumes and counting. You'll find that many of the translator scholars of the writings of the early church publish with both universities. 
Now, I know there are other publishers that I have not mentioned, but it is not to say anything of their quality. It is just that the two universities I have mentioned have a constant stream of translations of Greek, Latin, and Syriac fathers, and they find their way easily to the general public, including myself. These are good places to start, and when you delve into the fathers, you'll find your way to translations from other publishers. Now, how do we actually get around to reading the fathers now that we know how to classify them, how to approach them, and what publishers to get their books from? First, none of this is meant to be done individually. This is something that the church should deliver and support because this is its heritage. Protestants have largely ignored this heritage. Many Catholic communities have not been able to focus on this heritage because there are so many needs that need to be addressed first, such as socio-economic and educational needs. Orthodox Christians also have the same issues. But for us living in the West... A golden opportunity has presented itself because we have the ability and ease of access to these treasures. So first, seek guidance. Seek a priest who knows the fathers, whether you are a priest yourself or a layperson. It is not shameful for priests to seek other priests from whom they can be instructed, but rather it would lead to great growth for you and for your congregations. Then two, Study with a priest and read, because in that experience you will learn how to deliver the ideas and meanings easily to your congregations. Easily does not mean quickly or simply. Some things cannot be oversimplified. Think about explaining to a teenager who sits behind the steering wheel for the first time, who asks you to tell him or her in a simple way what he or she should do when they hit the road with other drivers for the first time. The assumptions in question are all wrong. It is a long process of education, guidance, and practice in a parking lot or neighborhood street before hitting the main streets and highways. It cannot be oversimplified. So, in the same way, the study of the Church Fathers cannot be oversimplified. Then guide your own congregations, and as some grow, choose people who can serve to teach the Fathers. 4. Take courses. If now you stop and say, what? what? Take courses? Think about this. Why are we so willing to take courses and exercise at the gym, or even wake up early for them, and not do the same for our spiritual lives and services? All things that are valuable require an education. So it will take one or two courses from those who will lead, plus the continued guidance of priests, and not necessarily in the Father's, but also in the history of the time they lived. Then five, start services for different ages. What? What about all that talk of studying and education? Different ages? Yes, start services for different ages. Even young children can understand the ideas of the church fathers. For example, the idea of sin in the early church is likened to a disease and disorder that spreads in humanity due to giving in to our desires and letting them overpower us, and also by imitation. Also, in the church fathers, evil results when we choose the less or worse for the better. I remember I went through Genesis with a middle school group at my church over the course of a few months only looking at this idea of sin play out throughout the book of Genesis. 
and how sin resulted when people let their desires or anger overpower their minds. Those middle schoolers were perfectly fine following this development throughout the book of Genesis. And we have people from many different backgrounds, so it was not like we were teaching kids who were extremely well-educated and advanced. Of course, there were some of them in there, but we have many of many different backgrounds, and they were able to follow. The overarching ideas of the church fathers are not difficult to engage with, but it requires those who know them, understand them, and have learned to live and see with them before they can communicate them to others, like to these middle schoolers. So now, I end with a note. If you want to go deep and to gain a full appreciation of the Church Fathers, the one field that you must absolutely study is ancient philosophy. This is because ancient philosophy was the main intellectual and societal force of the world in which Christianity was preaching the gospel. As will become clear in later episodes, the early church rigorously engaged every way of thinking in the ancient world and brought the light of Christ to bear on these ways of thinking. The result was a transformation of knowledge and a transformation of lives leading to a transformation of society. The study of philosophy will also be beneficial because it will teach you how to think precisely, articulate ideas clearly, and make arguments powerfully. This is needed both in church and even more so in society in general. With the background understanding of philosophy to strengthen your way of thinking, and helping you appreciate what exactly it was that the church fathers were doing, these will also provide you with a model for how to engage the world in its many different ideas today, so we can once again become effective at communicating the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.